Hello and welcome to the It's a Wonderful Life episode of Sleep Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with my colleague Emily Peck. Hello, hello. Hello. And we are going to talk about It's a Wonderful Life, which is obviously a movie about banking, but it's also a movie about Christmas. It's a movie about community. We are going to talk about algorithms, amazingly. We are going to talk about intersectionality. But actually, we're just going to have a lot of fun talking about Jim Stewart and George Bailey and what happens in this movie. Emily, who's our guest? The wonderful Kathy O'Neill, the former co-host of Slate Money herself. Kathy O'Neill is back from an undisclosed location. So she is going to be joining us to talk about It's a Wonderful Life coming up on Slate Money Goes to the Movies. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Kathy, you chose a classic Christmas movie. <laughs> you can't you can't shrug and, and throw your hands feeling. in the air on a podcast kathy no one can see you doing that <laughs> oh 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 right no no i it wasn't a shrug it was more like a a smug smile um listen i mean this is not only one of the, my favorite movies um i would say it's like up there um, it makes me cry every single time, including when I was preparing for this uh, this morning. If you see, like, I, I cry <laughs> eyes, that's why. It's curious financially to me. It, 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 it always sparks my curiosity and interest. And I never had, you know, the time or the reason to really delve at all into, like, the, the storyline, the underlying economic storyline. Like, this is obviously uh, basically a remake of Dickens' Christmas Carol, which had basically nothing to do with banking. As far as I think the original like book or script that was optioned also had nothing to do with banking. The decision to make our hero the custodian, I guess you would call it, of of this little building society, I think happened like quite a few ways into revisions. Do you think that the fact 
that this movie has, you know, it won lots of Oscars. It has become this much beloved favorite of all good thinking people. Uh, do you think the fact that it has that bank at the heart of it, or actually two banks at the heart of it, is part of that, or is, did, does that not actually matter? Oh, I think it matters a lot. I mean, look, I think it's all about uh, the concept of what is what's worthwhile, like what is a man's worth? Um, and it's constantly contrasting the concept of money as a way of measuring yourself versus other other currencies, other social types of currencies like family and friends. So I think the, the fact that it's about a bank or about a, a system of banks really is critically important to the story. Spoiler alert, the 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 great finale of this movie um seems to be saying that um family and friends are basically fungible with money that as long as you have family and friends they'll come through and, and give you eight thousand dollars if you need it. Yeah, I mean <laughs> say that again because I, I'm a little confused what you mean by fan family and friends are fungible. Well I mean like so there is a long-standing tradition in movies, and we've talked about this on this in this late money goes to the movies many times in the past, um, where the path to redemption and and having a good life and having a happy ending involves giving away a large amount of money that, on some level, you I don't know whether you deserve it or not, or whether like, but wh however you come into the large sum of money, that's not the happy ending. The happy ending is when you give away the large sum of money, and then you have the happy ending. Like you know, we we had that in what was that terrible Woody Harrelson movie? But yeah, that happens all the time, where he plays an architect, indecent proposal. That was it. It's a standard trope in movies, and once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere. And this movie does that. A couple of times we we have uh our hero george bailey um first of all takes his tuition money and gives it to his brother so that you know because he needs to take over the bank then he takes his honeymoon money and and gives it to his shareholders to save his bank and so like that theme of the way you achieve nobility in this life is by giving away money rather than hoarding it in, you know, a la Mr. Potter, the evil banker, um, runs through the movie up until the very end. And then at the very end, the reason the very end is so happy is because he asks for $8,000 or his friends ask for 8,000, you know, have a kind of whip round for him and say like, can we come up with $8,000 for good old George? And they seem to come up with like, some great multiple of that and there's this huge pile of money sitting in front of him on the table and um no one is claiming any of it and it's just gifted it's not even a loan that is like now we're now we're happy at the end because he just has all the money he could ever want I 
I mean, and they're mostly ones, so it's actually not clear to me that it, it is $8,000 in total. Um, but then when, like, whoever it is, the warden or somebody, rips up, you know, his, uh, his the, the, the little piece of paper that says he's going to be arrested, whatever that's called... Um, then, then it becomes clear that he's in the that he's he's off he's off of the charges. Yeah, and and his friend, the the plastics millionaire, you know, comes through with like twenty five grand or something. Yeah, um, very very from posh. London. Um, yeah, you know, agreed, agreed. But I would just frame it a little bit differently. I I actually think the entire movie is a question is sort of examining the the nature of what money is really for. You know, I agree that he gives away the money uh, for college to his brother. He gives the money from his honeymoon to stop the the bank run during the depression. I think that what we're supposed to understand from that is that, like, he had an opportunity to be selfish, not in his, not in a sort of ru- terrible way, not selfish like horrible, and uh, but to do something for himself, you know, for an experience for himself. And, and most explicitly, he turns down twenty thousand dollars a year from. From that's Mr. Great, Potter yeah, to stay on $2,000 right. a year. And he has these choices offered to him. Do you want to be, uh, do you want to be it to be about you or do you want it to be about the community? Um, and he consistently chooses the community because he, because, and, and so the, the, the point of the, the movie, I will argue, um, is that even though we all need money and that is completely clear and it is contextualized, um, it is not about money. I mean, one of the sort of, uh, first things that Clarence the Angel says to um, anyone in the in the entire well, the actual living people besides you know the the angels, the other angels and God. Um, the first thing he says is, "We don't have money in in heaven," and so that's that's supposed to set us up to be like, "Oh, they have a different currency." And indeed, oh, like, that's like the that. whole point, right? The whole point <laughs> is that it is... They have Bitcoin. Yeah, it's definitely not Bitcoin, Felix. Calm down. You'll help me, won't you? Sure, sure. How? By letting me help you. Yeah. Only one way you can help me. You don't happen to have 8,000 bucks on you. Oh, you? no, no. We don't use money in heaven. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> right. I keep forgetting. It. <laughs> Comes in pretty handy down here, bub. Oh, tut, tut, tut. I found it out a little late. I'm worth more dead than a lie. Now look, you mustn't talk like I want to give a shout out to my son who also watched this movie and talked to me at length about it. He's studying economics, so he's interested in this. And he put it into two different historical contexts because, as he pointed out, it's like where the movie's set, which is starts in the Depression and goes up to past the war, and then where the movie's made, which is post the war. And he made the point that like a bunch of, you know, World War II veterans came home with with like all these ideas of sort of positive ideas of communism uh, and sort of anti-capitalism. And you think there's a lot of that going to our earlier point, Felix, of like this movie is, in my opinion, a movie about what is the real purpose of money versus community? Like what, what do we owe to each other versus what do we owe to ourselves? Certainly, if you look at what happened in the UK after the war, that was, you know, the the first election after the war, Churchill gets kicked out, the Labour government gets voted in, the National Health Service gets created. There is this move towards socialism, um, which I guess, you know, the closest thing you would have in the US would be the New Deal, which was before the war. But this movie was made like 
more or less during the war, at the end of the war. It came out in 1946. So the war was super fresh in people's minds. But yeah, so this question of, of, of money and the role of money in the movie and how central the role of money is to the movie, I think it's really super interesting. Most obviously, this whole story is dichotomous, right? You have the good money person who's george bailey and then you have the bad money person who's mr potter and they both run banks except for george bailey doesn't actually run a bank he runs a building and loan it he runs a lender um so you can borrow money from his institution um he does have depositors so there can be a run on the bank but they're not depositors like we think about depositors in this age of like um, you know, FDIC insurance and demand deposits and checking accounts. Um, you know, you you get shares um, if you deposit money, and you it's basically like a it's a weird thing. And and the reason why Uncle Billy is going to the bank bank to deposit the building society's money is because the building society isn't actually a bank, and if you if you are not actually dealing cash. You do that at the bank. And that distinction um, was a really important distinction back in the 1940s, but it's completely disappeared now. It just doesn't exist. I mean, it does to a little degree, I guess. Um, there are lots of lenders who don't take deposits. There aren't places, it's still very rare. I've, I've come across it like once or twice in the in the realm of like commercial mortgages and stuff where you'd get like shares in lieu of a deposit account. So that was a fascinating like look into what was considered like good and noble and what was considered bad and what's considered good and noble is basically not a depository institution and the depository institution is evil. Yeah, it was it was really I, I was I was amazed to find how much this movie was a movie about good banker bad banker cuz you know I remember watching it when I was a kid and that didn't matter to me at all. And I was thinking about how, like the um, the the divide between these two doesn't really matter now because the way mortgage lending is, well, this movie this all happened before the U.S. government started backing mortgages, I believe, right? And so going forward from there, you didn't need to rely on like good guy George Bailey to help you buy a house and. Valley Park. You didn't have to rely on nice, the nice banker man to get you your house with all your children, the Martini family in Bailey Park. You could just get a loan backed, if you're a white person, backed by the federal government. And um, banking sort of moved on from like this thing that individual guys do or help you with, right? Not necessarily for the better. So one of the reasons I chose this movie was because I am confused by this good bank, bad bank thing. And you know, like, I guess it was called a building and loan that, that George Bailey was running with his uncle. But it certainly reminded me of the saving and loan banks. Um, like, and, and I know that they had so many, so much trouble in the 80s. And, you know, probably they were just as corrupt and greedy and looking for a, um, you know, a high inter a high return um, as anything else. But um, as, as I learned in researching this, like, in part, that's because they they were not put, given as much regulation post the depression as the uh, deposit banks were. Um, so the deposit banks had the FDIC insurance that prevented the runs that we saw. And as you say, Emily, the, we had the um, guaranteed for white people um, mortgages. And by the way, sp speaking of white people, can we just 
acknowledge just the problematic nature of the the maid um, in the story. Um, in sort of every single scene that she appeared, it was embarrassing and, and very cringy. Yeah, the, the the one person who had no chance of getting a mortgage or a house of her own from <laughs> the building and land. She couldn't even sit down at the table with them to eat. That was a joke. But I mean, she was, you know, not to get too sort of intersectional about this, but um, but I think back in those days, it was actually impossible for women to get a mortgage, whether they were black or white. Yeah, no mortgages, no credit nothing i also you know speaking of cringy moments the the horrifying alternative reality for mary the who was the <laughs> wife um was to become a librarian um and i was just like wow you know she, <laughs> wow that's the worst case scenario i suppose and the vibrant nightlife of bedford falls was like just sodom and gomorrah and terrible it looked fun to me i was like that that bit that bit looks fine to me yeah yeah, well, Mary's really the unsung hero of the film, right? I mean, while George is feeling sorry for himself, looking out over the Bedford Falls Bridge or whatever, Mary's like rustling up the town to save him. She she had four kids, but has also remodeled the entire dump haunted house. Like she's really the gem here, and I don't I don't know. But I want to go back to Emily's statement about there is no distinction. I really actually think Potter is Warren Buffett. You know, Warren Buffett with his empire of trailer parks. Um, don't you think that's appropriate as an analogy? Like, it, it's not that we don't have, uh, it's not that we don't have, like, um, potters anymore. It's just that they're not, they're not considered mainstream bankers. It's funny that you say that because Potter is such a villain in this film. Like he is just like the worst person. He, I think George Bailey's dad before he dies says like, there's something wrong with him. He's sick inside all this badness. Um, and then in my like Google research for this segment, I came across like um, the house on American activities commissions report on it's a wonderful life, you know, cause it's obviously this communist movie they think, which I mean, are they wrong? no, but in the in the report, there's all this language about how they could have made the banker seem nice and better and more like altruistic and how it was like a warped version of what a banker is supposed to be, um, which I guess ultimately th that's how we think about Warren Buffett, right? He's like, just like you're saying, Kathy, he's like this folksy, folksy guy. So if like Potter in 2021 would also be this just folksy folksy banker guy those of us who are old with long memories will remember that warren buffett had a stint as the chairman of a bank specifically of salomon brothers which was busy um inventing mortgage-backed securities i think roughly at the same time uh -huh. and um i think there's i think what's interesting about potter is that he is avaricious in a way that bankers are still are to this day in the popular imagination but really, um, nowadays, you generally find only in finance rather than banking. And I think one of the big things that you really notice watching this movie is the fact that outside a handful of credit unions, this kind of personal relationship banking with normal people doesn't really exist anymore. And if you walk into your local branch of Chase or bank of america um there is no lending officer who can basically say 
you're a good person. I believe in you. Here's a mortgage. It's all done by some algorithm somewhere. And uh, that has pros and cons, right? Like on the one hand, if it's all based on you're a good person, I trust you, then it is all at the whims of humans who are inherently racist and generally consciously or unconsciously um, biased in all manner of respects. But Kathy will be the first to tell us that the algorithms can be biased too. It just, it's a question of like choosing your poison, right? Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Felix. Um, this idea that like, I will personally vouch for my friend who should have a real home. And I happen to feel that way versus Potter who across town doesn't feel that way, wants to keep them in the slums. Um, I think he called them garlic eaters, the Italians that were moving into um, to Bailey Bailey Park. That was the way it worked. And it, to our point earlier, like women weren't allowed to get mortgages, black people weren't. And that was just sort of the guards, the guardians of that system were the bankers or the folks like George Bailey, if you don't want to call him a banker. That was explicitly outlawed in legislation in the 60s and FICO scores were invented as a response to that legislation to make things, to make it possible for bankers to still make loans. So FICO scores were a reaction to um, FICRA and ECOA, Fair Credit Reporting Act and Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Then once FICO scores were invented, they got scaled up massively because now you have this automated fast system that seems really efficient um, that was, was explicitly built to be legal. Um, and once you had that legal system for, for denying people loans, it was, it was scaled beyond anybody's imagination and for uses outside of loans um, very quickly. And to Felix's point, nowadays, we don't even have, well, we, we still have FICO scores, of course, everybody knows that. But we also have all sorts of families of other kinds of credit, lo- credit ratings um, associated to FICO scores, very correlated, but not, not exactly the same, built by every lender um, and every fintech company that has been invented um, since, since then. So it's, it's, it's a huge industry. And it, you no, no longer see that person-to-person thing, which is good and bad. Why is it bad? Because it, at first, when you start thinking about it, you're like, oh, it's so nice. George Bailey knows Ernie, and he gives Ernie a loan, even though Mr. Potter wouldn't give him the loan because he knows him, and that's more important than any like track record. But then you think about it for 10 seconds, and you're like, wait, you could be giving loans to your friends. They could turn out not to be able to pay them, and what a messy situation that becomes. Like, no one wants to loan money to their friends. That's how you lose friends, I would imagine. So isn't it a good thing that this system doesn't exist anymore? It is often a good thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, let me, it's probably, it's probably good in, for, in a lot of cases, but I will just caution us to imagine that it's not, it's not certainly not perfect. Like one of the ways I got into this entire like biased algorithm game is by really listening to the original pitch of uh lending club was it called lending club oh lending club they were they were early on this yeah they were very early and i was on top of them listening to exactly what they were saying here's what they were saying we're going to look at your facebook friends and decide whether you are worth a chance even though fico hasn't found you yet so you know people who without lending uh, experience without borrowing experience people who are young essentially like college students or immigrants um, don't have the credit history required to have a good FICO score. So 
we're going to find you and we're going to give you loans. Now, who do you think that that privileged, right? It privileged people whose fake Facebook friends were wealthy people, obviously. So it was like, I'm going to give you a hand up, but only some of you. And that was, that is the kind of the system I think we should keep in mind when we think, um, when we think about uh, who does this benefit? Although if you look at all of the, you know, we're going to do social underwriting fintechs who started up. And a lot of people have made that claim. You're absolutely right about Lending Club. Um, a firm came out of the gate saying it was going to underwrite based on that. Um, Upstart came out of the gate saying it was going to underwrite based on that kind of thing. They're like, we're going to look at your your full social graph and we're going to be able to predict how credit worthy you're going to be in the future without having to have recourse to a bunch of credit history that you don't have because you're too young or an immigrant or something like that. And when you actually look at what they do, they all kind of tried the the social graph thing and they gave it up pretty quickly. Like, it just doesn't actually work that well. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. I have just some little things I wanted to make sure I mentioned first. Why is there a crow in the bank? Why does a crow oh, yeah. in the bank? Why does Uncle Billy have a squirrel in his home? Little questions. I read online the crow symbolizes death and the bank is going to die. I, I, I don't think that makes any sense. But I'm, I'm, Oh, I thought you had an explanation. You're just asking oh, no. us. I'm wondering. Yeah, I think it's because <laughs> the crow symbolizes like death or something. I think it's also because Uncle Billy is just incompetent, which sent me down a spiral of like working with your relatives and how that, again, puts a business person in an awkward position. But maybe the, I guess, the message of the film is just like there are things more important than business. So you have to keep your ridiculous uncle employed. Otherwise, he'll go into a mental asylum is the message there. You have to take over your father's business, even though it's not a good business, et cetera, because there are things more important than money and business, right? Yes, I do agree that the argument the, the argument of the movie is like, there's things more important than awkwardness, right? Like it is awkward. It is a conflict of interest. And yet you do it because you owe it to your family to do it. So it's very, you know, family obligation oriented, obviously. Um, That's why he never went on his trips. He never went to college. Um, And that's a very important aspect of the movie, which I cannot relate to that well. Like I kind of feel like, you know, when my kids are grown up, they can leave me. That's cool. You know, <laughs> like I say that now, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. Maybe I'll change my mind. And to your point though, I wanted to also bring up something which, which is like, 
I know we've already admitted that it's communist, but I'll tell you, this is what makes me cry every time. Like when he is at his worst, um, he goes to Potter to beg for a loan of $8,000, which is how much um, Potter stole from his uncle or didn't return from his uncle. And the thing that Potter says that he repeats to himself a couple times later on was, I'm worth more dead than alive. I'm worth more dead than alive because he had a life insurance policy that was paying out more than he had, than he owned in assets. That's the first, first instantiation of that concept of what is a man worth. And then the second one is the very last line of the movie, I believe, which is like, you're the richest man here. You're the richest man alive, which isn't about money, right? It's about his family and his friends coming together to, to care for him. The fool flew all the way up here in a blizzard. Carrie, how about your banquet in New York? Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast <laughs> to my big brother George, the richest man in town. So I feel like that. I'm crying just thinking about it. <laughs> that is um, <laughs> beautiful. Shana shared with us this really good blog post from Lindy West, and I think she points out like kind of just how <laughs> it's pretty clear that George Bailey has a wonderful life. Like we, we, he shouldn't have needed this angel to show him like the, the fact that this, this boy couldn't go on a global trip after he finished working or going to school, like, and his hopes were dashed of having a harem of women, as he explains to Mary in the soda shop in the beginning, like that's not some great tragedy. Like what is he so upset about? Really? It's just such a, the whole movie kind of has this very like really puts him on a pedestal in a way that's sort of I don't think would maybe would still happen now where, you know, he makes big speeches and his desires are elevated, like are, are seen as just so important that he has to go to Tahiti or whatever. Um, and that's just like so, so important. And he's really like suffering as a result is kind of absurd if you think about it. Like, OK, so he didn't get to go on a trip. He has to stay and run a a business and and have a beautiful wife who like makes a beautiful home for him. I mean that there's no really dramatic tension there. It's not so terrible. You know what I mean? Well, it's <laughs> it definitely I mean last season we talked about the fountainhead, right? And the uh which was like the polar opposite of this movie, which is all about like the 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 singular drive of the individual is the thing that makes America great. And the one thing this movie does a pretty good job of is saying that the singular drive of George Bailey has never been to stay in Bedford Falls and run a stupid building and loan, right? He, all he wants is to get out, to see the world, to build magnificent monuments, to be a kind of Howard Rock figure, basically. And he needs to give up on his dreams, or he doesn't need to give up on, the, on his dreams, but he winds up giving up on his dreams, um, for the greater good of his family and his community. And that's the, you know, I don't know if it's communist, but it's definitely communitarian aspect of the movie, right? That he, that there's, that, that there is a loss to him of agency, which is forever. And the, one of the reasons that he never really wants to settle down with Mary is, is precisely because he doesn't want to settle down in Bedford Falls. Uh, it's a it's a good question um, about how much how sorry should we feel for this guy, and it's especially when you, and as we have consider his opportunities versus 
you know, the maid, the women in the, you know, and yet I would argue that I do relate to him. Like, absolutely. I'm not a, I'm not a white guy from the forties, but we all want to have the freedom to have dreams. And we, he wasn't asked to be clear. Like he wasn't rich. He wasn't asking for money. His, you know, remember that line he had was like, Oh, then I'll come back and go to college and see what they know. Like he will, he wanted to like go experience the world. And I think everyone can relate to the desire to experience in the world, even if um, they're not given that opportunity. So like that, that frustrated, uh, the thwarted ambition of experiencing firsthand what the world is like is really all he was asking for. And, and he probably deserved it. And that's what, that's what Americans are supposed to deserve. And of course, every American deserves that. But it, it wasn't like he was like on a trust fund or something. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, yeah, that's the frustration. It's like, if only everyone could have been given the chance to like have a dream and there had been like some empathy for the failure to achieve that dream. Like Mary's dream is what to be with George in the haunted house. Like she's not really allowed to have a dream where she gets to go explore. Like she even tells him at one point, he's like, why do you want to marry me or something? And she says, cause I don't want to be an old maid. And like, of course she's like joking, but I honestly don't think she's joking that much. Cause like, that's what you had to do back then. Otherwise you become an old maid and like everyone looks down on you. Whatever. Yeah, that phrase, a lot of old pressure. maid was used. <laughs> it was weaponized. I would say in that. Yeah. Like, I'm, like women, people of color, like they weren't allowed to have those kinds of dreams. Like they wouldn't have dared to, well, maybe they would have, but a movie wouldn't have been made about it. All I mean to say is that like, we should, instead of shitting on this movie because the white no. guy got to have a dream, we should just be like, everyone deserved that dream, right? Like we should yes. lo- raise the level rather than yes. lower our levels. Yes, everyone deserves a dream. And I also cried at several points in this. Thank you. Thanks. That's all I'm asking for. I was so Felix, did you cry? Felix, Felix. I cried. We all cry. I think my son cried too. So it's so nice. I forgot just how like delightful it is. Like when they're dancing on top of the swimming pool and it starts to move and the crowd is roaring every time they get close to Ah, the edge. Dancing too. I wish we still knew how to dance. Oh yeah. I loved it so much. So, Emily, you can tell us, having watched the swimming pool sw- scene twice, Yes. how does it compare oh. if you watch it in color? Oh, right. Oh, right. So I, I like Google, I got my Amazon out, I called up this movie, and I just started watching in color, not even like thinking about it. My husband looked over my shoulder. He's like, I thought this movie was black and white. I was like, who cares? And then I said to Felix, <laughs> like, oh, I watched the colorized version, and he was horrified, and I was shamed. So I went back and and watched in black and white, <laughs> and um, it's it's better it's better in black and white. I mean, it looks weird. The colorized version does look weird. And the lighting is strange, um, but I still cried and everything, and enjoyed the film a hundred percent. And if I show it to my kids over Christmas next year, I probably might show them the colorized version just because I feel like young kids might like that better. Like they might appreciate not appreciate black and white the same, but a hundred percent the lighting and the the way things are staged and shot makes a lot more sense in black and white for those of you who care, like Felix. I care because this is, we are meant to be talking about movies here and movies are visual things. Yeah, and, uh, deliberate. And, and, and one of the, you know, one of the things that definitely struck out, stands out to me, the way that our, our heroes, George and Mary, are just like 
stunningly gorgeous movie stars. And then the the sort of goofy, you know, Uncle Billy or heaven for fan like Mr. Potter, they are just like not good looking. All of the other suitors for Mary's attention are kind of nerdy and, you know, there is this kind of conflation of being good and being good looking does seem to happen in this movie. Well, what about Violet, who's apparently like the town slut, right? Who is redeemed by George <laughs> Bailey. She looks, she's attractive too. And it's not, nece- she's not necessarily one of the heroines of the film, right? She has got a more kind of give and take there. She's more of a gray area character, right? It's true. It's true. And and she's, and she's the, she's the avatar in, um, she's like the little hint in um, Bedford Falls of, what might befall it, it were it to become Pottersville. If you squint at her, you can almost see in her red lipstick that she leaves on George Bailey's cheek that the licentiousness and and you know sinfulness that might befall this wholesome town. One one question I had about the communist message and the community message was if community is so important and significant, why would the removal of one person ruin the community shouldn't the community be able to good question i will say that bailey park and the lovely post-war houses that he's building there and the whole institution of a building and loan are very capitalist right they're houses that are bought with capitalist loans with capitalist money and built with you know george bailey is a property developer which is a very um capitalist job to have um makes a decent money but makes a decent living doing it and probably earns more than most of the people in town except for mr potter himself and and that was like that was the dream of america in the post-war era was really this idea that that you could harness capitalism in the service of building a middle-class lifestyle and that America would be a nation of martinis, basically. Um, Which I think is, I think it's oversimplifying to say that it's communist. I mean, it really is, it's capitalist. There's a lot of capitalism going on there. Um, And it seems clear from the movie that Potter could have done it himself. Like they could have got a mortgage from Potter's bank as easily as they got a mortgage from the building and loan, were it not for the fact that Potter was conflicted by being a slumlord and he wanted them to keep on paying their overinflated rents in the slums. um, And he didn't want to lose that income. Is George Bailey a proponent of stakeholder capitalism, Felix? So one of the other things that was really fascinating about this movie is that it wasn't commercially particularly successful until the studio somehow, by oversight, let the copyright lapse. And then it entered the public domain in 1974, and then it appeared on television every Christmas, and then everyone started to love it. Is that right, Emily? That is absolutely correct, Felix. Bless you for knowing the per- the history to the, to the finest detail. But yes, after 1974 all the network TV stations were like, hey, we have this free heartwarming little movie here. And they ran it all the time. And the whole country fell in love with this film. I remember watching it. I would just put on the TV growing up and there it would be. It would just be on. And it was kind of like fun and everyone knew it. And now it's an instant classic. Which raises the question, why isn't it available for free on Netflix? 
But because it's available for free on Amazon. Well, it's actually not available for free on Amazon in Ireland. I actually wound up having to pay for it. But it seems like a freebie for Netflix, no? Like, there's no reason why they shouldn't have it. And I'd love to know why they don't have it. Yeah. Oh, that's an open question. If people know, they should email us because I don't know the answer. Yeah. Slate money at slate.com. Why doesn't Netflix have It's a Wonderful Life, given that it's in the public domain? It's not like Netflix has all the public domain films there on it. Why not? But that that's the question. That why the wouldn't question. why wouldn't they? And it's but it's interesting to me, like had the copyright not lapsed, would this film not be something everyone watches every year? Would it just have vanished into the black and white hole of history? So in, I don't know. Right. It would be something that like Michael Beirut would pull out of the memory hole and be like, oh my God, this is a classic. Who knew? And, and we'd be like, wow. <laughs> it would take our podcast <laughs> to popularize this film, actually. That's what would happen. But we would do it, right? And you would come out and you would give it top marks? Oh, absolutely. What a terrific, what a terrific little film we've got here. I really enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's heartwarming. It's ridiculous. It's anachronistic, but like at the end of the day, super entertaining and, and warm, like gives you warm fuzzies in, in the best way. I, I have to say, I agree. I, I don't want to agree because I'm, you know, a natural contrarian. And if the two of you are saying how much you love it, I, I'm just going to be like, well, you know, I've got to find a reason to hate it, but I can't. You know, I'm I, my my rubber soul was melted by this darn corn dog of a movie, and um, I'm slightly ashamed to admit it because I don't think of myself that way. But I, it's true; it's a genuine classic. Uh, thank you for Kathy for making us all watch it again. It was a wonderful movie, and thank you guys so much for inviting me to talk about it. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thank you for listening to this here show. We will be back on Saturday with a regular Slate Money 